Well, good morning, friends. How are we doing today? All right. Hey, it's good to see you. If this is our first time together, my name is Timothy Atik. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Watermark, and it is just, uh, it's great to see you. Last Sunday, I was sitting right there just with a heart of gratitude, uh, number one, because uh, I love getting to listen to John Elmore teach, but number two, I realized that he had drawn the short straw on teaching 1 Corinthians 5, which was about church discipline, so I was super grateful. And then I realized that this week I was getting 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, which is about lawsuits in the church, so that's awesome. Like, no one this week, when I was like, I'm talking about lawsuits in the church, no one was like, I cannot wait to be there. They were like, oh, it's a good weekend for a vacation. You know, like, that's just, just where we're at. But uh, as I was thinking about this morning, here's the realization that I had, and you might disagree with me, uh, but... Many of us were better at conflict resolution when we were little kids than we are today. Here's why I say that. When I was in third or fourth grade and I was on the playground, a kid named Michael put me in a headlock and rammed my head into a brick wall. The next day we were fine and we were back playing together. But if you put me in a headlock today and ram my head into a brick wall, you're going to jail. Like that's just kind of where we're at. Like if one of my kids just completely demolishes one of my other kids' Lego sets, as adults, we look at that and we're like, it's really not that big of a deal. But in that kid's little world, when his Legos get demolished, the most important thing to him in that moment gets utterly destroyed and yet can forgive his sibling and be back at the dinner table by night with his brother. That's a pretty incredible thing. But if you take a baseball bat to my car, we're not going to dinner tonight or any night in the foreseeable future. That's just, when we were kids, we didn't have any other framework. It was like, you know what? You, You wrong each other, you say you're sorry, and you move on. And as we've grown up, what we've realized is that there's just, there's just other options, especially when people wrong us in a significant way. We've just realized that there's, there's other ways to deal with the conflict. You can cut people out of your lives. You can, uh, you can just ghost them, which means you don't return their calls. And so you control the relationship by just communicating with them when you want to communicate with them. You can gossip about them. You can take them into the court of public opinion, and you can, you can gossip about them so that other people won't like them, or if it's significant enough, you can actually take them to court and, and sue them. So that's just kind of where we're, that's where we're at today. And uh, here's, here's the reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is just going to, it's going to give us some instruction on what does it look like for us to figuratively speaking, as the family of God, what does it look like for us to have conflict, but then get back around the figurative family dinner table together? How, what does it look like for us as followers of Jesus Christ to have serious conflict and then serious resolution? 1 Corinthians 6 is going to help us do just that. So if you have a Bible, turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If this is your first time to watermark in a while, we are just journeying verse by verse to the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's great because 
First uh, Corinthians is a book written to a church uh, with tons of drama. Like every week is a new reality TV episode. Okay, today is people are suing each other in the church. Like last week, it was seriously messed up. Okay, when we get to the second part of chapter six, seriously messed up. So it's great. Just keep coming back. And each week we'll just unravel their drama and we will hopefully learn from it. First Corinthians chapter six. Let me read it to you starting in verse one. It says this, Paul is talking and he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So all eyes on me, let's just be clear. This, this passage answers a very specific question. Here's the specific question. Is it okay for a follower of Jesus Christ to take another follower of Jesus Christ to court with a lawsuit? That is the specific question that this passage is answering. And some of you hear that and you're like, that's crazy. Because that's exactly where you're at right now. Like some of you in this room, you're, you're in this moment with Possibly someone in this room, someone in this church, someone who goes to a different church. There's, there's a busted business transaction that you guys have been a part of, or, or there's some in investment with real estate that's just gone sideways, or someone sold something to someone else, and it's not what you thought that you were actually getting. There's, there's possibly some of you in this room that you're dealing with that, and you're contemplating whether you're going to have to take legal action against someone else who's a follower of Jesus Christ. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're here this morning. And I hope that this passage is helpful for you. But the reality is that many of you are not in that place this morning. And so what do we do with that? Well, what we are going to do is we're going to use this passage to just help us be a healthier family. Like as the people of God who live in the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to be a healthy family. All families have conflict. All families have conflict. And so we want to be a family that does conflict well, okay? So that's what we're gonna do. We are committed this morning to learning how to fight better. 
Okay, so before we jump into the text and just walk through it verse by verse, let me just give you a couple of notes for you to understand this text. Number one, please understand that Paul is addressing civil cases, not criminal cases. So when we read this passage, it is, it is not to be used when talking about violent crimes, physical abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse, uh, sexual assault. This is not what this passage is to be used for in its application. That's the first thing that you need to, to be clear on. The, the second is that this passage is not speaking to a believer and an unbeliever going to court. This passage is specifically about family business, okay? So with those two things in mind, let's walk through the passage. And as we walk through it, what, what I want to show you is uh, four reasons why conflict is an inevitable opportunity, okay? So this morning, I'm giving you four reasons why conflict within the family of God is an inevitable opportunity. Here we go. Look with me. Verse 1, it says this. When one of you has a grievance against the other. Did you see the wording there? It doesn't say if one of you has a grievance against another. It says when. Conflict isn't a matter of if. It's a matter of when. You should expect conflict. And let me just be clear. I don't think I'm telling you anything new right now. A conflict is a reality even in the family of God. Like if you decide to go into business with someone else in this church, conflict's gonna come. If you decide to work for someone who goes to this church because you love the fact that they're a Christian and go to your church, don't be surprised if conflict still comes or if you hire someone to work for you in this church because they're a Christian, because they go to this church, conflict will still come. Come, if you choose to get into a community group and do life with other people, you're going to have conflict inside of your community group. And that is okay. Conflict is, it's inevitable. And conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. Conflict can actually be a God thing. Even very serious conflict can glorify God in a great way. And so conflict can actually be one of the greatest ways that we put on display the love and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. For that reason, conflict becomes an opportunity. It is an opportunity to display the glory of God to the rest of the world. So we are calling conflict an inevitable opportunity. It's inevitable because it's going to happen. If it hasn't happened to you yet, just wait longer. It's inevitable opportunity. The believers in Corinth have an opportunity and they're wasting it. Okay, they are doing conflict in the absolute wrong way. That's why Paul says in the rest of verse one, he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The wording there, Paul is saying, how dare you? How dare you? Dare you take your conflict to the, to the public court system and you put your cases before people who don't share the same values as those within the family of God. You're, you're taking your problems 
to, to courts who don't have the same values. In, in ancient Rome, the courts could not be relied upon to administer justice impartially. I mean, bribery was a, was a real thing. Judges could be bribed. Advocates, lawyers could be bribed. Witnesses could be bribed. Um, judgments could be swayed by fear or personal connections. And Paul is like, you guys are blowing it. Like, how outrageous the way that you're handling conflict among yourselves why does Paul think that it is such a failure on the part of the church in Corinth? It's because of their, listen to this, it's because of their identity. It's because of who they are. So that leads us to the first reason that conflict is an inevitable opportunity. Number one, conflict is an inevitable opportunity to live out your identity. Here's what I'm saying. When it comes to conflict, your identity must determine your activity. Who you are should determine what you do in conflict. And we see that in verse 2. Look at what Paul says. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So now Paul is talking to the two people who are in conflict, and he's talking to the whole church. He's like, you guys are actually saints. Did you realize that you're a saint? Congratulations, you made it. You're a saint, so Saint Jim, if you're in the room, way to go. Saint Sarah, congratulations. Saint Mark or Matt, whatever your name is, if you know Jesus Christ, then according to the scriptures, you are a, a saint. That's the Greek word hagios. It means, it means holy one. It's the idea of being set apart. You're, you have been made new, you've been made different. We talked a few weeks ago about the great exchange. What's the great exchange? It's Christ's righteousness to us, our sin to him. That is what has happened. If you know Jesus, he's taken all of our sin and he has given us his, his righteousness. We are truly different people. We are holy people. We are saints. And Paul is saying the fact that you're saints should change everything about the way that you do conflict. Paul even explains one of the realities for those of us who know Jesus Christ. He says in verse two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's interesting. You ever heard that before? Like we don't have time for this to become an end times talk, but what Paul is saying right now is he's saying that, um, that there is a point coming in the future where believers will somehow participate in the judgment of the last days. Like we will in some way have some responsibility or some participation in the judgment of the last days. And then he gives even more detail on that in verse three. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? That's probably a reference to fallen angels, that somehow we will participate and the judgment of angels. So he says, if the world is to be judged, this is verse two, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, remember who you are. 
Like this is Simba looking into the water when he sees the reflection of Mufasa, and Mufasa is like, remember who you are. And now I'm going to get emails about quoting Disney. But anyway, <laughs> it's the same thing. Your Father in heaven is saying, remember who you are. We, we are saints. We are people who will participate in the judgment of the world on a cosmic-sized scale. So God, through Paul, is like, wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that you saints who are going to have some responsibility in the end times, you guys can't get it together and figure things out when you're dealing with temporal issues within your church. That's what he's saying. He's saying, remember who you are. Your identity should determine your activity. There's a right and there's a wrong way for saints to deal with conflict. Verse 4, he says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He's like, it makes, it makes no sense. You're taking your problems and you're putting them before people who have no standing in this place, meaning that they don't share the same values. Their angle and your angle shouldn't be the same thing. Now he's going to give us another piece of our identity in verses 5 and 6. Listen. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? That's an interesting statement because he is just, he's going for the jugular here. Because it's a shame-honor culture. And he's like, hey, let me just be clear. My goal is to shame you. Like, let it be clear. I don't want any uncertainty. My goal is to shame you. Okay, in a culture where wisdom is elevated, like people are flocking to listen to orators because they want to hear the latest wisdom of the day. And inside the church, to be wise was to be considered spiritually mature. So Paul, listen to what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I say this to shame you. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to sell? He's like, look, are all of y'all in spiritual diapers here? Y'all are all still on the bottle? Like none of you has grown up spiritually enough that you are wise enough that you can actually step in and help? Like have the elders fallen apart? Are there no leaders around that can help do what? Settle a dispute between the brothers. Verse 6, but brother goes to the law against brothers, and that before unbelievers. And so Paul now brings in another piece of their identity. He just says, look, here's what's happening. A brother is suing a brother. We're, we're family. This is one of the beautiful realities of the gospel, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Christ saves you from your sin and the penalty of your sin, but then he also saves you into a new life, and he saves you into the family of God. So this is such a beautiful reality. Ephesians chapter 2 would tell us we were enemies of God, and because of what Christ has done, we are children of God. Like Jesus Christ did something so significant that he kicked open a door for you and me into the family of God, which means that we have brothers and sisters in the faith, and we share a common spiritual DNA. What is that? Each one of us has the Spirit of God living inside of us. 
And if you've been with us walking through 1 Corinthians, we saw in chapter 2 that because the Spirit of God lives inside of us, we can have the mind of Christ, which means we can think like Jesus thinks, and we can feel what Jesus feels, and we can do what Jesus would do. We are the, the family of God, and all of our stories are the same. It's a story of forgiveness. Like, if you know Jesus Christ, then you have had a trajectory-shaping encounter with the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's your story, and that's my story as well. So all of us in the family of God know what radical grace and forgiveness looks like. And Paul is like, guys, you remember who you are. We're, we're family. We're not going to be a family that, that never see each other, sees each other, that are kind of separated from one another, estranged from one another, because we forget how to love one another. I just want you to think about this. I want to, oh, this, this might, we'll just see how this goes. This might get scrapped for the second service. We'll see. I just, I want you to picture yourself in heaven. So picture yourself in heaven. Jesus is there. People that you love are there. We're all singing, all hail King Jesus. It's happening. It's amazing. And just picture you, you decide to look around. That's probably not going to happen. And this is probably theologically incorrect. But just imagine you just begin to look around to see who else is in heaven. Is there anyone in your life now that while you're singing, all hail King Jesus, you're going to be like, all hail King. I hate that guy. Like, what? What is he doing? Like, you don't want that. That just to even think about that, to think that you'd begin to look around and someone would like be like, oh, you. Like, that... That feels like such a disconnect. Why? Because Jesus has redeemed us. And he went to the cross so that we could experience his forgiveness. And because we experience his forgiveness, we can extend his forgiveness to one another. And so heaven should just be one perpetual family reunion where the people of God are overwhelmed by the glory of God. Okay, so who you are should determine what you do in conflict. Identity should determine activity. Second, we see that conflict is an inevitable opportunity to display the gospel's credibility. Okay, conflict is an inevitable opportunity to display the gospel's credibility. Did you see what Paul said at the end of verse six? He said, brothers go... But brother goes to the law against brothers in that before unbelievers. And so as I've read commentators on this, here's what they're talking about. They're talking about the shame that is coming upon the church because people are trying their cases in public. So the courts in ancient Rome, they, it, it was possible for the public to, to look on and to see what was going on. And not only that, advocates, the equivalent of, of lawyers in ancient Roman courts, they were expected to show no restraint. 
So one resource, one source put it this way, the advocate was permitted to use the most unbridled language about his client's adversary. Young orators learned their trade with colorful character assassination, often playing to crowds of onlookers. So just imagine two followers of Jesus going to court and their representatives just ripping each other apart in front of the public eye full of unbelievers. And Paul is saying, what a shame. Like how embarrassing for the church and for the gospel. How can, the, how can unbelievers even begin to take the church or the gospel seriously? How can believers proclaim a message of forgiveness when they are tearing each other apart in court? Their court case is a shot to the credibility of the church and the gospel. Several years ago, I was, I was in serious conflict uh, with another person, and it was, it, was, it was very serious conflict, and I left that conflict extremely hurt. And I, I didn't do it often, but I remember taking that guy to the court of public opinion. What I mean by that is I remember sitting I can specifically remember sitting at a lunch where I was sharing with this other guy about this person that I felt hurt by. And what I was doing is I was, I was taking my case to the court of public opinion. And as I think about sharing with that guy, I just think, what reason was I giving that guy to see the value in the gospel or the church? Because what I was was a follower of Jesus Christ pointing the finger at another follower of Jesus Christ in speaking words of hurt against him. In God's kindness, it, it took time that that person and I, we were able to reconcile. And we even got to a point where, where I, I will never forget standing in the parking lot of a re restaurant talking to this guy and, and him just saying, this is how good God is that the two of us had been reconciled. And I remember people who had seen that conflict, watched that conflict, they watched with amazement. Like they, they truly couldn't fathom that that type of reconciliation would have taken place. And you know what that was? That all that was, was it was putting on display the credibility of the gospel that the gospel can do supernatural things in people's lives, that the gospel truly can transform and it can break down the, the largest dividing walls and it can restore the most broken relationships and it can solve the most complex conflicts. Number three, conflict is an inevitable opportunity to grow in intimacy. And I'm talking about intimacy with Jesus Christ. Conflict is an inevitable opportunity to grow in intimacy. Look with me at verse 7. Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And so here's what Paul is saying. When you take someone to court... 
and you sue them, your goal is to win. Your goal is vindication. Your goal is justice. But Paul's point is this. If your goal is to win, you're going to lose. Like just the fact that these believers in Corinth have taken another brother to court in hopes of winning, Paul is saying you've already lost. You have already lost. And so this is kind of turning things on its head. Because the goal of the court system is to execute justice. And and Paul is saying, you know what? If you go to the court to get justice for you, that's winning but it's actually losing in certain civil cases. Which, which means that the reverse becomes true in Paul's logic. That, that to lose is to win. Now, first Peter, Peter is going to help us truly understand this idea that to lose is to win. Listen to what he says in first Peter chapter 2 verses 19 through 20. He says, for this is a gracious thing. In the Greek, that means this finds God's favor. For this finds God's favor when when mindful of God. So doing this with God in mind, with mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Do you understand what Peter's saying? He's saying, look, if you want to know what finds God's favor, it's this. It's that there's a willingness in you to suffer and endure injustice. That's what he's saying. That actually finds God's favor. And then verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called. For to what? Well, to suffering unjustly. Do you see that? Peter is saying, you want to know what you've been called to by God? For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That word in the Greek that's been translated as example, it's the word that is used of children who trace over letters of the alphabet in order to learn to write the letters correctly. So what Paul is saying, it is, it's through suffering wrong that you enter into God's will for your life. And it is through suffering that you actually receive God's greatest blessings and rewards in your life. And then he says this in verses 22 and 23. He, that's Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So do not miss what I'm telling you. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, why not rather be defrauded? If someone in the church wrongs you and you choose to be wronged over suing them, then this is when you are most like Jesus. And this will be when the cross of Jesus Christ makes more sense to you than at any other time in your life. 
and it causes intimacy. Because the more you're like Jesus, the more you see and enjoy Jesus. So it's an opportunity for intimacy. And then fourth, conflict is an inevitable opportunity to demonstrate authenticity. It is an inevitable opportunity to demonstrate authenticity. When I say authenticity, I'm just saying it's an opportunity to demonstrate that your faith is real. That you don't have a fake faith. You have a real, a real, active, authentic faith. Paul says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so this is just Paul saying, hey, look at me. I want everyone in Corinth to listen up. He's just saying, look, if, if you're the one who's doing the wrong, like if you're the one who's defrauding your brother and you don't feel bad about it, if you're making bad business deals, if, you're, if your character is compromising, watch out. Be careful. Because for you to continue in that, you probably need to evaluate if the Spirit of God is in you in the first place. And the kingdom of God might not be in your future because when you look at the, the fruit of your life, it does not reflect kingdom fruit. And at the same time, he's looking at the person who's being wronged and he's like, look, if, if all you do is cling to your rights, if you just continually demand that your temporal situation is restored to exactly what you want it to be and you cling to your rights, there's actually a form of, of greed in there where you refuse to allow yourself to identify with Jesus and his sufferings in any way. Instead, you decide to cling to, the, to, the, to this world being exactly how you think it should be. His, his response to that person is also, watch out. Because your values aren't synced up with the values of the king. And yet he finishes in verse 11 and just says, In such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see what he's saying? He's just saying, guys, look, I'm telling you to watch out and I'm also telling you to just be reminded. Jesus has done a significant work in your life. He's washed you of all the filth of your sin. That's what he did. When you put your faith in him through his death, burial, and resurrection, he washed you clean. He has made you clean. He sanctified you, which means he's set you apart. He's put his spirit in you. He's justified you, which means you're in right standing with God. So be, be right with one another. So what Paul is saying is, look, be who you really are. Like he's made you new, so live and look new. Do not let the greatest shaping forces in your life be the world or your rights. Let the greatest shaping forces in your life be Jesus Christ, his cross. Okay? So, 
what do we do with this? Okay? Where do we go from here? I want to quickly, I just want to give you a few steps to take. No matter where you're at, whether you're someone who's sitting there considering suing someone else in the room, or you're just in the middle of a really mild conflict, let me just give you a few steps. Here's where you start. These are a progression. Number one, when conflict comes, number one, respond to God instead of reacting to the person. I don't know who said that, but I love it. It's not mine. It's someone's. I don't know whose, but don't give me credit for it. Respond to God instead of reacting to the person. Our tendency is to just want to react. So if they hurt us, we want to hurt them. You want to deal with conflict in a way that really honors God? Then just pause and and say, God, how do you want me to think about this situation? How do you want me to feel about this situation? God, what do you want me to do in this conflict? And sometimes you need to step away from the conflict so that you can get perspective and so that you can respond to God. Because when you allow yourself to respond to God, you might realize that the conflict is minor. Don't major in the minors. Don't major in the minors. Figure out what the size of the problem is. There's, I, I used to do this with my kids. I used to say, hey, is this a small problem or is this a big problem? Let's use our hands, people. And so is this, if this is a small problem, Noah or Andrew or Jake, then is your response to the problem a small response, small reaction, or is it a big reaction? So it's just good. When you respond to God, you can figure out, is this a small conflict or a big conflict? Am I having a small reaction or a big reaction? So maybe you get alone and you pray and you're just praying and you're like, I don't know, what are we? That's fine, whatever you need to do, but you want to figure out what's the size of the problem. In our house, we use these, they're, they're called the unthinkables. These are superhero villains that kind of show up and and ruin your day, and there's all sorts of supervillains, and one of them, we didn't make these up, people, like this is not me and my creativity. There's curriculum out there for them, but one of the villains is called Glassman. And Glassman is someone who's just way too sensitive and has a major response to a small problem. And so maybe sometimes in your prayer life, you just need to say, God, am I, am I being Glassman right now? Like, where am I at with this? As you process it with the Lord, if the problem is big enough, you'll know it. Because time doesn't heal all wounds. It just makes them worse. And so if it's something that you can't let go, and there should be a lot of small conflicts that you just let go. But if you can't let it go, then here's the second step. Be a problem solver instead of a problem spreader. Okay, be a problem solver instead of a problem spreader. Go to the person. Go to the person. Our tendency is to go to everyone else except the person. And so what we do is we spread the problem. And we take people, we take our situation to other people. And when you do that... What you need is a fire extinguisher and all you're going to get is lighter fluid because you're going to go find the people who you know are going to be like, oh my gosh, he did that. (laughs) How dare he? I hate him too. (laughs) It's not what you need. So go, 
go to the person. Go to the person. And as you go to the person, make sure that your side of the street is clean. Like, as you go, you need to ask God, what am I responsible for? What do I need to own? And whatever that is, own it in front of him or her. And then give him or her the opportunity to do the same thing, but go to the person. And that might not just be one conversation. You might have to talk it out, and then you push pause and you say, look, okay, we've gotten as far as we can get today. Let's take a break for a week and let's circle back to it. And you might do that for a period of six, seven weeks, but you're making progress. And so you just keep working on it until there's resolution. But if you can't get it worked out, then here's the third step. Ask for help. Ask for help. So this might mean bringing a member from your community group to the meeting. And you might ask him or her to bring someone from their church or their community group to the meeting. And the four, five, six of you, you begin to talk through the situation. And, and by inviting outside perspectives into the mix, the, the goal will be for community to help both of you respond in the most God-honoring way. And if that still doesn't work, then come to the church. And if you're not, if you don't see what I'm doing here, I'm just walking through the process of Matthew chapter 18 right now. But invite the church into it. So that might mean reaching out to pastors on staff or even the elders at certain points to invite the church into your situation. We have, we have pastors on staff who are lawyers. We have different men and women on our staff who have, who have been through all sorts of situations where they have helped people navigate all sorts of complex issues. I was so encouraged yesterday talking to one of the pastors on our staff, and he was just telling me about a situation that happened years ago where there were two, two Christian families um, who had an unfortunate situation happened between the two of them. And one of the families was ready to lawyer up. Like, and, and honestly, it, it seemed like they had every right to do that. But before they did that, before they decided to move this in to the court system, here's what they did, is they reached out to Watermark and they asked for help to respond in the most biblical way possible. And so, what these families did is they both agreed to meet with some pastors on Watermark staff. And so both parties got together with some pastors and they met three different times. Do you know what happened at the first meeting? At the first meeting, all they did was pray together, ask the Spirit of God to move, and they read scripture together. One of the passage, which one of the passages was in fact 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The second time they came together, they discussed the facts. And so both parties came ready to share what was going on. The third meeting, they experienced a tremendous turn because God had been working in both families' hearts that the family that was considering suing had resolved that they were not going to take any legal action at all or ask for anything. And the other family had decided that they would do whatever they needed to do to make it right. And that's how God works. And God was incredibly glorified. What a great testimony of his goodness and the reconciling power 
of the cross of Jesus Christ in their lives. But you might be sitting here and you're saying, you know what, we've tried that and it's still not working. Well, let me just encourage you, stay at it. Because it might take more than three meetings. It might take weekly meetings for a year. But as long as both parties are willing to come to the table, God can still be in it in doing something through it. And if in the end, two believers cannot resolve their situation, then step four is this. Consider sharing in Christ's sufferings. Consider sharing in Christ's sufferings. Verse seven, one more time. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Several years ago, there was a Watermark member who was planning to do a remodel of their home, and so they contacted a contractor who also attended Watermark to to do the work, and uh, the Watermark member paid a significant amount of money up front, and the contractor began to go to work, and the work just wasn't right, and the work, the project halted, and it fell apart. And so basically, the, the member contacted Watermark, and Watermark kind of stepped in to begin to help navigate this issue because there's a contractor that, who went to Watermark that owed the member at Watermark about $20,000. And uh, they began to talk. They, they were in meetings on a weekly basis. They established how this money would get paid back. And then the contractor just up and left and moved to a new state, stopped answering phone calls, stopped responding, and never paid a cent of that $20,000. And so you have this Watermark member who had to make a decision on what he was going to do. And you know what he decided? He decided it's better to be defrauded by the tune of $20,000. John Elmore, the other teaching pastor, was one of the people who worked with him through this process for a year. And John texted him yesterday and just said, hey, is it okay if we share a little bit of your story? And here was his response. Absolutely, it's okay. Thank you so much for what you and others in the body did to help me through that situation. My natural self too focused on justice and fairness would have led me in not just legally pursuing the matter, but also into major bitterness. But having you all walk us in the path that God's word lays out was a massive blessing. And he went on and he shared that he's been able to encourage others. And here's, this was his wording. This is how he encourages others. He just said, let's just do what God has clearly advised and then we can enjoy a lack of stress and anxiety no matter the outcome. Just entrusted himself to the Lord. And now his story is being shared with thousands as a testimony of God's goodness in his life, even in the midst of suffering wrong. I'll close just by saying this. I remember years ago, years ago, uh, our family was in town for Christmas. And so... I remember coming to the Watermark Sunday service the the Sunday after Christmas. And I still remember this. Gary Stroop stood on this stage, and Gary wasn't even preaching the message at the time. He was just doing the announcements, but he was reflecting on the fact that he was spending a lot of time with family over the Christmas break. And I will never forget him saying that, that there was so much joy in him knowing that there was no relational brokenness in his heart 
toward those in his family. And I thought about that, and I was like, what a beautiful thing to be able to say. What if we could each say that about our spiritual family, about the family of God? What if we could each get to a place where we say there's no relational brokenness in my heart towards anyone in the family of God? I don't know if that's possible, but I'll leave you with Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if possible, meaning sometimes it's not possible, but if possible, as far as it depends on you, meaning you do what you can and you leave the results to God, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Let's pray together. And I'm just going to ask you to respond just right now in the quietness of your own heart. Like if you're the one causing the problems, like if your heart is hard right now and you're causing conflict, then I just want to encourage you right now to repent. And if you're here this morning and you're the one being wronged, would you just encourage God to give you the strength to take another step, whatever it might be, and to entrust him with your future. And then maybe you're here this morning and you're realizing that you're in conflict with God, that you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And if that's you, here's what you need to understand. You're at war with God and you don't even know it. You're either with Jesus or against Jesus. Jesus came, though, to make peace between you and God. Because of his death, because of his burial, because of his resurrection, Jesus has made a way for you and me into the family of God. If you do not know Jesus Christ, then I encourage you this morning to invite him in. Lord Jesus, we need you. We love you. We thank you for who you are. Would you do a good work in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.